scripture reading this morning will be from the book of Matthew, chapter 24, verse 35 through 44. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Somebody could bring that to me, I'd appreciate it. Oh. Gotcha. It's only been a couple of months since I've been here. Good to be back with you again. Thank you for having me here this morning. It's a beautiful day. As the Lord's Day always is, it's a beautiful day and it's a great day for the Lord to come again. Would you agree? The last words in our Bibles uh, are these. He who testifies to these things says, this is Jesus, surely I am coming quickly. And then John responds, amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The question is, can we all say amen to that statement? And if we can't, Maybe we need to do some soul-searching. Have you heard the news lately? The United States of America is in decline. Our justice system is pathetic. There's no longer fair justice. We have riots in the streets demanding the genocide of the Jewish people. with all the other problems that we have in this country. And besides those, we have that great bear coming down from the north 
invading Ukraine. And once he gets finished with Ukraine, he's going to go on to the Balkans. And from there, he's going to go who knows where. We have the great power in the East. It's going to take back Taiwan. It will probably happen. But that won't be enough. He will continue on, and he will take Indonesia, the Philippines, Japan. We have genocide in the continent of Africa, in the Sudan, just as we, they had the same thing in Somalia uh, a decade or so ago, and before that in the Cameroon and the Ivory Coast. And we have a war going on in Israel. We have Israel being threatened on three sides. And they are chanting from the river to the sea. We'll not rest until the Jewish nation is no more. Is it the end of the world? Who knows? What did Jesus say in our scripture reading? No one knows. The angels of heaven don't know. Only the Father knows the end of the world. I've heard this question asked to me in the last six months more times than I can remember ever it being asked to me. Everybody that knows me knows that I preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and I think I've got the answer to that question. But they're asking the wrong question. We're going to look at that, at what the right questions are here in a minute. But I want to turn, seeing as how I'm on the subject of the end of the world, I want to turn to where the Bible talks about the end of the world, or at least the last place that it talks about it, Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw an angel, verse 1, coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till a thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the, their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. This has already happened. This has already taken place, if you study the book of Revelation. And I'm not going to get into a discussion of, of what pre, the premillennial theories are. There's several of them. But I want to ask the question, uh, 
where is the second coming mentioned in those verses? Where is a bodily resurrection mentioned in those verses? A spiritual resurrection was mentioned. Where is a mention of Christ's second coming? There's no mention of him reigning on earth, only in heaven. There's no mention of Jerusalem. There's no mention of the temple. There's no mention of the throne of David, where Jesus supposedly is going to be sitting, literally, in Jerusalem, in the temple. Yet from this text is spun a theory that has enlarged upon by premillennial advocates to the point one would think that it is found throughout the whole Bible. Quotation from Robert Harkrider. Well, let's go on. Because verse 7 picks up with what happens at the end of the world. Now, when the thousand years have expired... Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp and the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is yet in our future. And the world ends right there at the end of chapter 10. How do I know that? Doesn't say so. We'll read other scriptures that talk about that. But I know that because the devil is no more. And there is no more temptation. And so the world as we know it is no more at that point, at the end of verse 10. Now I realize that I make a statement up here. Uh, is it the end of the world? I asked that question. But this is, this is the wrong question. But again, I'm on the subject of the end of the world. And I want to notice that every generation has had perilous times where people thought that it was the end of the world. We could look at Jesus' prophecy in Matthew 24, verses 1 through 34, where Jesus predicted the destruction of Jerusalem. And in 70 A.D., it happened just as he predicted that it would. Imagine that. And for the Jew, it was the end of the world for them. It was the end of their world as they knew it because their religion was their whole center and there would be no more temple. We have the Roman persecution we have the devil and uh, uh, working along with uh, the Roman Empire, the Caesars, to exterminate the Christian religion. And this is what the book of Revelation was written for, why it was written. Chapters 1 through 14 describe the events that would take place symbolically. Uh, 
John wrote of, of things that would shortly take place, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The devil couldn't do it, but it must have seemed like that it was going to be the end of the world. We read in, in Revelation chapter 6 how uh, the people, the Christians that had been martyred, uh, they cry out, Revelation chapter 6, and in verse 9, it, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those had been, who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. And so it was a terrible time. If you read the history of that, Fox's Book of Martyrs uh, is one place a person can go to read the terrible things that happened to Christians in those days, and it, and it surely seemed like the end of the world. And yet that was 1,800 years ago. We had the fall of Rome, which is described in the book of Revelation in chapters 15 through chapters 19. And when you consider that Rome was the civilization, the, the only civilized part of the world at that time, which it was pretty good size, but when Rome fell, we can read in the 18th chapter of Revelation how the kings of the earth mourned for her uh, destruction. The kings of the earth, verse 9, who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her, that is Babylon, uh, semblance of Rome. They lived luxuriously with her, will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon... That mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. Babylon being the symbol for Rome. And as Rome fell, then the whole world, for a thousand years after, fell into darkness, what we call the Dark Ages. And the apostate church from Rome tried to annihilate the one true church through the different inquisitions that took place during those thousand years. And then getting closer to our time, we have uh, what had to have seemed to, to be the end of the world when Hitler and Tojo were, were taking over, trying to take over the whole world. And it seemed like that they were going to do it. And surely this must have been the end of the world. But it wasn't. And then we have my generation, and I can remember Nikita Khrushchev beating upon the, his pulpit with his shoe saying that we will crush you. And then the Cuban Missile Crisis, early 1960, and everybody thought that it was the end of the world. And so every generation has this and sees this. And even though the question I don't want to deal with is, is it the end of the world, that there's other questions we're going to deal with, 
I still am going to have to look at the events that take place at the end of the world. Now, there are only four events that I can see, and, and, and please don't get me wrong, I don't have all the answers concerning these issues. All I have is what's been revealed in my Bible. I've studied it as best I can. I'm still studying it. Uh, and as noted in the Bible study this morning, I've, every time I hear a Bible study or partake in it, I'll learn something new, something to consider that I hadn't thought about. But all I can see in my Bible is four events that are going to take place. There, there's, there's no thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. I, I can't read that. There's no multiple uh, resurrections what, that millennials call the rapture. Um, I see Christ coming. And let's just look at a couple of them. 1 Corinthians 15. This is a good one to start with because in this passage, the, the resurrection chapter of 1 Corinthians, I can see three of these events happening, and they're all taking place at the same time. 1 Corinthians 15 and beginning in verse 22. See if you can pick them out. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death and he goes on and so I see in this these few short verses the second coming of Christ mentioned uh, uh, Christ at his coming verse 23 I, I see the resurrection taking place uh, I see the end of the world then comes the end and so three of the main events three of the only events that take place at the end of the world are mentioned in this one verse if you turn to John's Gospel and we hear Jesus talk about this day in John chapter 5, uh, Paul only deals with the resurrection of the just in 1 Corinthians. I forgot, I left the verse out. If you want to turn back to 1 Corinthians 15 and look at verse 52, and you will notice that all of this takes place, everything Paul's been talking about, the resurrection, the second coming, the end of the world, he says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. The main point why I brought all this up is, and we'll look at another scripture as well that talks about this, this is going to happen very quickly. This is going to happen in the twinkling of an eye. There is not going to be time to get your house in order. Jesus talked about that in Matthew 24 in our scripture reading. Jesus also said in John chapter 5, not only will there be a resurrection of the just, but there will be a resurrection of the unjust. Um, verse 28, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice 
and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. And so there will be a resurrection uh, of the unjust. Well, when will that take place? Well, if you, if you look at 2 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians also talks about the, um, the resurrection of the just, those who are the Lord that is coming. Um, uh, verse 16 of 1 Thessalonians 4, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And this is why Paul wrote this. There was a misunderstanding of the resurrection. Some had taught that it already happened. Uh, some were afraid they wouldn't see loved ones. So Paul deals with that issue. But what about the resurrection of the unjust? Jesus promised that it was going to take place. Well, if you look at the next page to the right, 2 Thessalonians in chapter 1, uh, again, Paul is speaking of the second coming of Christ. And he says uh, in verse 7, And to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. There is the, the occasion of the second coming. And he will do so in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day. And so this is the other side of the, of the, of the resurrection. This is the resurrection of the, of the unjust. It doesn't talk about a resurrection does it? But it does talk about the Lord coming in flaming fire. Could this be an allusion to what Peter talks about in 2 Peter in chapter 3 when Peter talks about the end of the world? And Peter also, just like the Lord did in Matthew 24, he makes a comparison of the days of Noah. Uh, people were eating and drinking and having a grand old time and the flood came and took them away, and Jesus said the very same thing would happen uh, at the end of time. And Peter teaches us how the earth is going to be destroyed. The earth was destroyed the first time with water, and people were mocking and, 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 were, and were saying, well, where is all this at now? Uh, verse 5 says, for this they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water but the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. And he goes on and describes that day in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. It's going to be unexpected. There's no time to get ready. It's going to happen too quick. If you're in it and you're experiencing it, it's too late for you. Wherever you're at in your life, in your spiritual life, that's where you will be. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. 
And so that's what's going to take place at the end of verse 10 of Revelation chapter 20. Those are the events that will be taking place. And then finally, in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 11, is one of the places that we can read about the great day of judgment. I saw a great white throne, verse 11, Revelation 20. And him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and the death in Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one, according to his works. Please notice those statements. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And so those are the four events that will take place, three events, before the end of the world, and then the great white throne judgment. But let's start talking about the right questions to be asking. Because I think I've, I've kind of made my case where if we're asking those questions and it's happening and then it's too late. What will be the basis of the judgment? I think that's a good place to start. I know Jesus said in John 12 and in verse 48 that the words that I have spoken to you will judge you in the last day. And so it is the words of Jesus that will be our judge. Whatever Jesus said, and that goes from Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 all the way through Revelation chapter 22 in the very end that we just got through reading a minute ago. It includes the entire New Testament. Not just the words in red, because of the words that the apostles and the prophets spoke and wrote down came from Jesus. Jesus received them from the Father. Jesus gave them to his disciples, uh, uh, to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gave it, those words to the disciples, and so on and so forth. Yet judgment will be based on works. We read that a couple of times this morning in our Bible study. I've got, I'm just going to put them all up here. There's many more I could have put up here, but I've got three sets of four, uh, which makes 12, which is a good round biblical number. That's why I wanted to put them up there. And every one of them teaches us that we will be judged by our works. Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 14, one of my favorite passages. Uh, uh, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For every work will be brought into judgment, whether it be good or bad. And since Jesus' words are going to be the basis of judgment, how we respond to those words 
will be our either uh, glory or our condemnation. You see, we have control of our destiny. We can choose to go to heaven or we can choose to go to hell. I can't imagine anybody making the choice to go to hell. Can you? But we're the ones that make that choice. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which was also read this morning in our, our Bible study, I'm going to read it again. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. You recall in Revelation 20, John wrote that the great white judgment will be based on works. Now, there's three different kinds of works mentioned in the Bible, and I won't go into them. I'll just state them. Anybody has a question, I will open the Bible after service, and I'll, after this, and I'll, I'll show you. There's works of merit that are spoken of by Paul in Romans 4, Ephesians 2, verse 8, and other passages. Works of merit where, where we earn our salvation. Nobody can do that. There are works of faith. There are works that we do because God has said, Thou shalt do this or do that. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 talks about that we are God's workmanship created unto good works. Okay, well, this is works of faith. And then there's the works of the devil. Uh, that we all had our part in. Again, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Uh, and so, whatever works we're involved in, we're going to be judged by them. And so, I want to continue. What other questions do we need to be asking? Is it the end of the world is the wrong question. How about what happens when I die? If I'm not mistaken, the last time I was here, I preached a sermon on that. Maybe. Well, really, it's been kind of obscure in the, throughout the Old Testament. We didn't get a whole lot of information, but when Jesus came along, and in Luke chapter 16, he opened the door. He gives us a lot of information as to what happens after we die. You know, the Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 7 that uh, at death, that the body uh, goes back to dust from whence it came, and the spirit goes back to God who gave it. And so the question is, what does God do with the spirit? Well, we're, we got an answer to that question here in Luke chapter 16. Two men died. A rich man who lived sumptuously, and a poor beggar who sat outside the gate desiring to be fed from the crumbs that, that fell from the rich man's table. As far as we know, the rich man never helped that poor beggar. Well, Lazarus, the beggar was Lazarus. Lazarus died, and the angels carried him away to, to, to Abraham's bosom, uh, a symbol of, of uh, comfort, of, uh, of safety. Well, the rich man also died, and being in torments, in Hades, 
he lifted his eyes and he saw Abraham afar off with Lazarus in his bosom. And he said, Father Abraham, send Lazarus over here so that he might dip his finger in water and put it to my tongue, for I perish in this flame. And Abraham told him, can't do that. Can't do that. For there's this great gulf between us where we cannot go to you, you cannot go to us. And so the rich man said, well, send Lazarus to my five brothers so they will hear to stay out of this place. And Abraham told him, if they will not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they hear one who was resurrected from the dead, inferring the resurrection of Jesus. The point that I want to make from that story is that at the point of death, we go to a place of disembodied spirits that the Bible calls, that Jesus called Hades, a place of torment for some, a place of comfort for others. You can't get out. You can't go from one to the other. And this does away with all kind of false doctrines, doesn't it? And so at death, your destiny is sealed. Whatever state you were in at your death, that's where you will be in eternity, either in Abraham's bosom, in comfort, in paradise, or in torments. It should get us to thinking. What's another question that we need to be asking? You know, we walk around, we mill around this rock that we call Earth, and we worry. Another passage we looked at this morning in Bible study. We worry about what we're going to eat, what kind of clothing we're going to have. Do I have enough money to buy that new pickup? Am I going to have enough money when I get old? So I can retire and I won't have to be working my whole life until I die. Well, Jesus said, what profit would it be? Just think about it. This is a rhetorical question. What profit would it be if you gained the whole world and lost your own soul? Or what would a man give in exchange for his soul? I tell you, the rich man would give anything and everything that he had or could get his hands on to change his place, to save his soul. What would a man give in exchange for his soul? This may seem a little odd, but the question was asked to Jesus. Luke 13, and in verse 22, one asked Jesus, Lord, are there few who are saved? If you go out into the denominational world and if you talk to people who are in, in, in the various denominations, they are joined arm in arm singing kumbaya because they all believe 
that they're all going to heaven, they're just taking different roads. And therefore they can unite with one another and get along with one another. Well, the question was asked of Jesus, are there few who are saved? And he said to them, verse 24, strive to enter through the narrow gate for many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. And so the answer to Jesus' question is yes. There are only a few who will be saved. We need to ask this question before the great day comes. I want to know what that narrow gate is. I want to know what it's all about. The sister passage to this is found in Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 13, where Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount teach us that strive to enter the narrow gate for broad is the way, wide is the gate that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in thereby because straight is the gate and narrow is the way or difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few, few who find it. There are only a few who find the way of life. I've got to know what that way is. I can know it doesn't take a genius to understand that if a thousand different denominations are distinct within themselves, and why is that? Because they teach something different from the other one that they all cannot be right. A fool can see that. And so I need to find, I need to find a group of people who want to, to be the church that I read about in the New Testament. That's what I've got to find. Because I know that they were saved. And if they were saved, and if I follow that, their example and their doctrine, the apostles' doctrine, then I know I can be saved as well. And so I need to understand that there are a few who are saved and try to find the way. Pray that we never hear that question, Lord. Uh, that's, I'm going I'm ahead of myself. The question, Lord, what do you want me to do? That's the question we need to be asking. Acts 9, verse 6, Saul of Tarsus, who was a murderer of Christians and was trying to stamp out the church just like uh, the Muslims are trying to stamp out the Jews today. Uh, and he saw Jesus in the proverbial light on the road to Damascus to, to wreak more havoc on the church. And he heard Jesus say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And Saul said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Lord, what would you have me to do? That is the most important question that we will ever ask. The most important question that we will ever ask. Lord, what will you have me to do? Pray that we never hear Jesus ask us 
why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? He asked that question while he was on earth. If he asks the question again, it'll be while he is in heaven at the judgment bar directed at us. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and have not done the things that I have said? How are we going to answer him? How are we going to answer him? Lord, what would you have me to do? I can't close this without going into what the Lord has told us to do. This is where it all begins. Asking the question and then hearing the Lord's answer. Who in their right mind would think that you can believe in something that you know nothing about? Does that make any sense? Does it not make sense that we have got to be told uh, what the gospel message is? In John's gospel, in John chapter 6, this is exactly what Jesus teaches us in verse 45. He said, it is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. You don't have to be taught the entire New Testament gospel. Uh, people had been saved by hearing one sermon as I read the cases of conversion in the New Testament. Uh, but there are a few things that we need to know. Uh, John presents one in John chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. He talks about Jesus as being the Word. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And all things were created through him. And then he goes on in the 14th verse and said, And the Word became flesh. And so we need to understand the makeup of our Lord Jesus. Uh, he is both man and God. He is Emmanuel, God with us. We've got to believe this. You've got to, you've got to hear all of the evidence before you're going to really believe that Jesus is God's Christ. You're going to have to see how he fulfills the prophets, uh, how he uh, performed all those miracles that he performed. Because I tell you, if Jesus isn't everything that he said he was, if he isn't everything that the Bible, the New Testament, and the Old, says that he is, and by the way, he said, before Abraham was, I am. In other words, he was the one speaking in the burning bush. If he isn't everything the Bible says that he is, that he is the biggest liar, false prophet that has ever lived, and we should never listen to him ever again. It's either one or the other. It's one or the other. You can't have it both ways. You can't say that Jesus was a good man and a prophet and then say, oh, but he's not God and, he, and, uh, and he's not the son of God. You can't have it both ways. Who in their right mind could believe 
Uh, Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 24, Lest you believe that I am he, he who? Messiah. Emmanuel, God with us. God's Christ. Lest you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Who in the right mind would believe that Jesus allowed himself to be nailed to a cross? God himself come, came down to, from heaven, took the form of a man was spit upon, was beaten half to death with uh, cat or nine tails, uh, threw him down on this wooden beam and nailed his hands and feet, and, and for six hours he hung up there probably completely naked and in agony, and then he died. Who can believe in their right mind that Jesus will say, okay, if you believe in me, you're saved. And it doesn't matter how you live your life from now on. That's totally absurd. That's totally absurd. What shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How can we who have died to sin live any longer therein? Romans chapter 6, the first few verses. Jesus had a discussion in Luke chapter 13 with some people and and he asked him a question. He was talking about uh, uh, greater and lesser sins. And he says, do you suppose that those who died uh, when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you suppose that they were worse sinners than all others? And Jesus said, nay, unless, I, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. John Chapter 9, I forget the verses, talks about those who believed in Jesus. They were priests, if I'm not mistaken. They believed in Jesus, but they were not willing to confess him because they were afraid to be put out of the synagogue. They were unsaved believers. Now, how do you know that they were unsaved? How do I know that they were unsaved? Because of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. He said, Jesus, that if you will confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father who is in heaven. But if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father who is in heaven. And so no Christian is a private Christian. We all make it known who we believe in and, and, and what we believe, that Jesus is the Son of God. And we've got to be immersed in water for the forgiveness of our sins. Some think that that's crazy. Why dip yourself in water? Well, it has nothing to do with the water. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 22 that it's not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but it's the answer to God of a good conscience. In other words, it's because Jesus said, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He commanded water baptism. And because I obeyed that, simply because he told me to do that. I don't care if, you, if I think it's nuts or not. Lord, what would you have me to do? Well, he's told us. To be immersed in water. And that 
Immersion in water washes away all of my past sins. Ananias told Saul of Tarsus, why tarriest thou, Saul? Acts 22, 16. Why tarriest thou, Saul? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. Calling on the name of the Lord. And it's all over there at that point, right? We're, we're saved. We don't have to worry about anything else. We're going to heaven. No. Jesus told the church I believe it was in Smyrna yes chapter 2 of Revelation verse 10 he said be faithful until death King James says unto death and I will give you the crown of life that idea of being faithful unto death in this context probably means uh, until your life is, until you're a martyr. If the Lord calls upon you to give your, your life as a martyr, be faithful. Don't deny him. You be faithful unto him until your life is taken from you and you will receive a crown of life. And it works the same way if we die of natural causes. He who has ears to hear let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And you know what that second death is. It was being thrown in the lake of fire. We read it in Revelation 20. And so the question uh, really is, and again, this is probably the greatest question. What will you do with this information? What will you do with this information? Will you continue to live a life in sin? Would you like to get rid of that sin and have a hope? The hope of heaven, because you don't have a hope now. The only hope you have is to be with the devil and his angels in that lake of fire. You have a choice. You can choose to go to heaven. Please do so. Uh, will you stand and we're going to sing a closing hymn. But the invitation is extended to anybody. If you haven't made your life right with God, do so. We don't know when the Lord's coming. Please come forward.